Beathard sets up deep in the pocket. Goes down the field for Smith. Fifty-six yarder. It's got no. Does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh my God! Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Don't miss a thing from the world of college football. Stay right here for College Gridiron on WFUV Sports. Welcome into a remote installment of College Gridiron, WFUV's home for all things college football. I am Jack Warner, joined alongside by Merrick Rhodes and Brendan Shorey. The holidays are right around the corner. Today is December 22nd, which means we are in the heat of bowl season. Not quite to the college football playoff just yet. We're just over a week away from that. But what it does mean is we are smack dab in the middle of a bunch of just fun bowl games to tune in. You always have a, multiple options every day. You can kind of sift through the channels and, and hop in on a bunch of different games. We have a couple of really fun games that we're going to highlight today from the past couple of days. Before before I get too far ahead of myself, I'll start with you, Brendan. How you how you feeling in the midst of bowl season and heading towards Christmas? You know, I really, really can't complain. Uh, all finals are done. So big waves and lifted off the shoulders. Now I just get to <laughs> go, go home, relax, watch some football. I mean, who could think of anything better to do? I know I couldn't. Yeah, you know, I mean, couldn't couldn't agree more with the whole finals thing. But you know, it's it's good being in this time of the bowl season. I mean. Kind of not the the biggest bowls, but you know you can always flip to a channel and you'll have a you'll have a bowl game on and and that'll be entertaining. There's one tonight I know I think it's UCF Georgia Tech, so that that'll be entertaining tonight. And uh, you know, kind of just anticipating, waiting for these bigger uh, New Year's Six bowls and the and the playoff games. I know I know Brendan's definitely waiting for one of those games in particular. Oh, okay. Okay. how you feel about that, Brendan? Are you are you are you getting antsy as you as you get closer and closer? I am a bit. I am a bit. I mean. I just, I just want it to happen already. I just, I, I, that's the one thing I hate about it is how it, there's such a long gap between the lot, like the conference championship and then the playoff. Right. Like I, 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 I want to dive into the playoff. I believe it. I believe it. Well, I think today is, is, is properly dubbed as more of a small bowl episode. Cause as we mentioned, it's not really any of the hard hitting bowl games, college po- football playoff type bowl games. A lot of smaller teams, some teams not even in the top 25 rankings nationally. But nevertheless, rankings aren't, you know, the condition on it being a good game. We had a couple of wild finishes, uh, one one in way better fashion than another. We'll start with Western Kentucky versus Old Dominion. And the Western Kentucky Hilltoppers defeated Old Dominion 38-35 to in overtime in the famous Toastery Bowl. Now, you hear... 38 to 35. And I think, I think it's safe to say your first thought is shootout back and forth. Probably whoever had the ball last won the game. That could not be any further from the truth. Western Kentucky was down as much as 28 points in the first half. They were down 28 to nothing before scoring their first touchdown. They end up scoring 21 unanswered points in the fourth quarter, including a touchdown pass 
to Katie Hutchinson with 19 seconds to go in the fourth quarter on fourth and goal. So backs to the wall, very last second, they're able to etch one in to tie the game at 35, push this thing into overtime. I want to get your initial thoughts, Merrick, after witnessing a game like this one. Was Do you think that this was more of a masterclass in, in clutch crunch time play from Western Kentucky, or do you think that this was just an ultimate, more of an ultimate collapse from these old Dominion monarchs? I mean, I, 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 I'll admit I wasn't watching the game live, but I had been following it on Twitter because it started going crazy because of obviously the 28 point comeback, but I didn't really realize how crazy it was until I read into it after the fact. And I think it's definitely more of a collapse by old Dominion. When you look at the fact that, <laughs> the quarterback, Caden Veltkamp, was uh, the third string quarterback for the Hilltoppers. They were without their uh, starter for the whole year, uh, Austin Reed, who opted out for the NFL draft to get prepped. And they they went to Turner Helton, who was benched in the first quarter after he fumbled and then threw a pick six. And they turned to Caden Veltkamp, who, believe it or not, is a redshirt freshman who they said, if you want to return with us next year, we're going to have to move you to tight end. So he's currently going into the transfer portal. So that might may change based off of this game. But he ended up throwing 52 pass attempts, completing 40 of them, going for 383 and five touchdowns. I mean, just that's just nuts. insane from a guy who's supposedly being asked to move to be a tight end. I mean, it's just insane. So I think it's definitely more of a collapse by uh, Old Dominion, especially when you look at the fact that they had two field goals blocked in, in crucial positions, one of them being in overtime. I think it's definitely more of a collapse, but but a huge shout out to to Veltkamp because that's just baller stuff. That. That's actually where I think I'm going to disagree with you, Mary, because I think it's I think it's more of a masterclass than a collapse. I mean, you look at you look at Old Dominion, and yes, they they failed to score in the fourth quarter, but I mean, Western Kentucky with their 21 points in the fourth quarter, along with a blocked field goal that would have made it a two possession game with about three minutes to go, and then a blocked field goal in overtime. I think Western Kentucky, everything went right for them when they needed it to, and I think their offense was able to get down the field with ease and score whenever they needed it. And the defense was able to come up. And while it didn't appear they were going to make a stop, they blocked a couple of kicks and made those crucial stops in order to make the comeback even possible. It does make for an interesting conversation because I do – I see – I see little bits and pieces from from both things you guys just said because I do think it's unacceptable in some of the positions that Old Dominion was in. Um, some costly turnovers along with two allowing two blocked field goals. You know, that special teams crew is out there for one job and one job only. And it's to, it's to get the play done, whether it's getting the field goal, getting the punt off, whatever the case may be. And on two separate occasions, you know what? Good defense is block field goals. It happens. You, you, you let one get blocked. That's, that's, you know, it happens twice. And the second one being an overtime, a chip shot of a field goal. Because remember, they start from like the 30 in college. So chip shot field goal, allow a second block field goal of the game. Now all Western Kentucky had to do was kick a field goal from God knows where. They ended up getting into wonderful field position. I believe it was right around a 20-yard field goal to end the game. So I see elements of a collapse on ODU's part. But I do have to say, Dalvin Smith – who had nine catches for 77 yards, including two, not one, but two acrobatic one-handed catches. He had one for a touchdown, and then he had this other one. I wish I wish I could roll some film. It was literally 
Dude got up so high, just an unbelievable vertical, snatches it out of midair with one hand, gets more yardage after the play. You know, just an unbelievable performance. So I do think you had a few and three touchdowns to go along with that those nine catches for 77 yards. So, you know, he was unstoppable. You had Caden Veltkamp, who, as you mentioned before, uh, Brendan, really rose to the occasion, especially being a third stringer. And I just, I, I think... It came down to if I had to pick one, I I think it comes down to more of a Western Kentucky masterclass. But I do agree with Merrick in the sense that there were some unacceptable miscues on ODU's part that I think set up, you know, greater opportunities for Western Kentucky to have, you know, things that they could capitalize on to make this look like more of a masterclass. It's almost like ODU supplemented the masterclass. Yeah, definitely agree. I mean, I can see definitely where you're coming from. I just think that from a broad perspective, when you look at lining up against a third string quarterback now, mm-hmm. after after knocking the first guy out of the game with a 28 point lead, I, I feel like you just can't really let that lead go. But it definitely it definitely is a masterclass in terms of of coaching adjustments and and getting right on the Western Kentucky side. So I think I think in any type of scenario like this, like any type of big comeback, whether it's whether it's the Falcons in the Super Bowl or whatever, <laughs> it's whether it's a Patriots masterclass or a Falcons collapse with the Giants yeah. comeback, it's the same deal. I feel like in these type of scenarios it, it all kind of depends on on rooting interest and 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 where you are in terms of uh what what you're favoring on in that certain in that certain matchup. But I can definitely see how how this could be looked at both ways. Yeah, I mean you you I mean you kind of said it. I mean most of these games with with big comebacks, it's always a debate. Was it was it a great comeback or was it a, a huge collapse by the other team? And um I mean you nailed it right on the head. It could it could be both and it most times is a bit of both. And I think that is what we saw here just Given a slight edge to the to the master class by Western Kentucky here. So once again, the final score of that one, 38 to 35 in overtime. The Western Kentucky Hilltoppers take down the old Dominion Monarchs. They finish the season eight and five. ODU finishes six and seven. That was the famous Toastery Bowl, which is honestly a funny name, to, if I'm being completely honest with you, but nevertheless, made for a great game, great story. Always love a crazy comeback. Now we're going to move into a game that was interesting for all the wrong reasons. And the reason, I guess the, the all the wrong reasons, I'm going to just address the elephant in the room. I don't know if Syracuse wants to have a football program after what happened to them last night when they lost 45 to nothing to the South Florida Bulls in the roofclaim.com Boca Raton Bowl. Guys, I don't even know where to start on this one. I guess the the thing that stood out to me the most is not only was Syracuse shut out, but they also had more time of possession. Once the final zeros hit on that clock, more time of possession than South Florida and didn't even record a point. The game finishes. Syracuse had 30 minutes and six seconds of possession time to a South Florida 29 minutes and 54 seconds. Their, the Syracuse Orange were one of 17 on third down. They were outgained 407 yards to 159 yards. Guys, what the hell happened? I will start with you, Brendan, because I did start with Merrick last time. 
what do you even make of, of a game like this, especially a Syracuse Orange team that had been in the news recently for a big coach hiring and, and, and landing Kyle McCord in the transfer portal? What the hell do you make of what we saw last night? I mean, I think I think this is just a huge collapse in, in the coaching department. I mean, I get I get your starting quarterback is out. Garrett Schrader missed a game. He had sur- uh, shoulder surgery recently. Um, but the interim coach, Nunzio Campanile, however you say it, his quarterback strategy just did not work. He I, – I don't I, – I seriously can't really comprehend the thinking behind the strategy. Like why – why he thinks he would work rotating between three different possible quarterbacks, one of which is an actual quarterback. He, he's he's throwing he's throwing the tight end the tight end in there. He's throwing the the, the running back in there, LaQuint Allen, Dan Villari, and then he's also throwing quarterback Braden Davis in there. And he's trying to justify rotating three different quarterbacks in throughout a game. They 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 managed 159 yards against. South Florida and South Florida's defense has been awful this season. 450 yards a game is what they're giving up. I, I, I can't comprehend the quarterback flight, the quarterback decision uh, that was made by the coach. It's uh, it's Nunzio Campanelli, uh, my my high school coach when I was a freshman. He was the head coach of my high school team. So uh, was he that's really? Yeah, that's cool. That's really but cool. uh. But no, no, no slack cut for him for this game. That's I mean, crazy. I mean, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. That's completely there was a t- there, yeah. <laughs> the second the second you brought it up, I was like, that's that's gonna. Ha- I don't have to mention that. But yeah, there's a tight end at Rutgers that was his quarterback when I when I was in high school. So that's probably where he got the idea to use the tight end as a that's quarterback. Hilarious. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was really just a bad game for Syracuse. I mean, I think if you're a fan of Syracuse, you're gonna you're probably gonna shrug this game off and and look at the fact that you have a great recruiting class coming in, as well as obviously the transfer of Kyle McCord, and you have a new coach coming in and and Fran Brown. So the future isn't isn't totally dark on Syracuse right now. I mean, obviously they've, they've struggled lately to kind of figure out what they want to do with their football program. But I think you got to look at this game on the, on the USF side, their offense was really good. I mean, Byron Brown, 214 passing yards, three touchdowns. He became the second USF quarterback with over 4,000 yards in the season. I think he had just over 4,000. Um, yeah. And I mean, they finished, it was a good year for USF uh, first time finishing over 500 since 2018. And uh, yeah, I mean, like you were saying with the whole quarterback dilemma, I mean, I mean, starting a tight end, he granted he was a former quarterback at Michigan, but now as a tight end and then kind of having a hodgepodge with even a running back uh, taking some snaps. I mean, 159 yards against this defense who who averaged over 450 yards per game is just an insane, an insane stat, and, and not being able to put a point on the board against a defense who lets up that many yards with with the amount of time they had the ball. I mean, I think it just came down to miscues. I know they had a long turnover that that ended up for a score that that was in USF territory. So I mean, just just an all around horror of a game for for the Orange. But I, th- I think if you're a fan, you're going to shrug this off. It was a bad year, but you know the future is bright. That's that's kind of always how it goes in college sports. Is is the future it's only out from here you can only get better but uh you know who knows higher level for disappointment next year though for sure <laughs> i think it's just so interesting when you think about the fact that they were just so on wounded knee for that game it it really did feel as though there was a bit of um defeat 
not even that far into the game, honestly. I felt the I felt the energy shift. I was actually watching the game last night, and early in the game, uh, in the first quarter, Syracuse recovers a fumble and has a long return, and then it gets called back due to a penalty. Um, it was it would have been a touchdown that tie the game, and it gets called back to a penalty, and you could just see the deflation come out of that sideline. It's like. You know, they were just hoping and praying that they get something to go their way. I mean, you you mentioned it, you touched on it, just the the quarterback situation being a nightmare just for that game specifically due to um due to injuries. You had Braden Davis, six of thirteen for eighty-four yards. You had Dan Valari, who I kid you not, uh he started his career at the University of Michigan before going to Syracuse as a tight end. Hence wearing the number 89. So, you know, you just felt you, you know, it was one of those games where you genuinely just had to feel bad at a certain point. It wasn't even, you know, I've watched games before where a team gets run right out of the stadium and they played sloppy or you could point, you could pinpoint areas where, you know, something went wrong and it's like, well, then you should play cleaner or well, then you shouldn't allow that to happen or well, whatever that was a game where I genuinely just felt bad. It felt like they were being bullied out there. There's, there's this one quote that I, um, I saw that coach Gillis of USF um, after the game. And I, I liked it and I thought he summed it up really well. And he said, there's a team that wants to be there. That's just happy to be there. And then there's a team that wants to win the game. And that's, that is what it seemed like uh, the case was. I mean, you just, Basically, going back to your point about uh, the deflation on the sideline after the uh, the flag on the fumble return, I mean, it it just seemed like USF was there to play, and and Syracuse really wasn't. Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, I think the scoreboard shows, and I think the whole game showed it. I mean, just out outdone in every single facet of the game: passing, rushing, receiving, turnovers. I mean, it, it was just a nightmare for Syracuse, and. And I mean, at some point in these games, you just kind of are out of it. And then that's when it really starts to spiral. Like you were saying, there was just a lack of energy on the Syracuse side. And and when you have a lack of energy and then you get into a hole, it's just near impossible to get out of. I mean, you'd hope it's a score at least, maybe even a field goal. But in this case, it wasn't. So on to next year for Syracuse. Right. And and I do think Merrick makes a great point that a very, very impressive recruiting class entering Syracuse next year along with landing Kyle McCord as a transfer which I think is going to be a very you know constructive thing for them especially you know playing at the Big Ten level leading Ohio State and and I'm going to be honest besides like criticisms get thrown at every player in the limelight Kyle McCord received a lot of criticism had big shoes to fill following CJ Stroud uh, you know, following uh, honestly a long list of impressive quarterbacks at Ohio State, but you you do have to think that like seeing a quarterback who was under center for one of the top teams in the Big Ten and the nation for a majority of the year until until kind of a collapse after the Michigan game. And honestly, a collapse is honestly putting it strongly. It's just their dip in the rankings came after a loss to Michigan you have to think that that projects really well for the Syracuse team, who is a more middle of the pack ACC team to land a quarterback through transfer from a top of the line, big 10 team, a top 10 in the nation, 
Big Ten squad. So I do think, again, this was – I know this this episode was devoted to little bowls. I don't want to sound uh, degrading, but at the end of the day, it was the Boca – it was the RoofClaim.com Boca Raton Bowl. I think they're going to be okay. I think, like you mentioned, Merrick, bright future ahead. Great recruiting class. Fran Brown, who has seen a lot of success as a position coach at University of Georgia – I don't think there's anything long-term to hang heads about. It'll be a little sour for a couple of days, maybe not what you wanted to see heading into your holiday, but nevertheless, a lot of good Syracuse football to be played, I still think, in my opinion. But we're through our two games that we wanted to highlight today. Now it's time for a little bit of a fun segment. We're going to pick two. Each of us came to today's episode with two, as we call them, small bowls. Now the criteria was neither team playing in the game can be ranked better than 10, 10th, excuse me, nationally. So we're going to go around. We're each going to tell you two bowls, small bowls that catch our eye and who we have winning them. Merrick, I'm going to start with you. What two small bowls did you come with today and who will come out victorious? I'll roll first with the the better matchup uh, of the two. And, and that's on Saturday. This Saturday, I mean, it's it's the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. It's, it's James Madison's first bowl game. Obviously, there was a lot of a lot of narrative about their season and, and what if they went undefeated, what would that mean for potentially getting a, a major bowl game? But alas, they lost, still ended up making it because there weren't enough bowl eligible teams. So they will be taking on Air Force. And I think it's great for JMU. I mean, they've had a great offense this year. They've averaged 35 points a game, 430 total yards a game, 287 in the air. I mean, Jordan McLeod had a great year, 32 touchdowns. But I think what's really interesting in this matchup to me is that obviously we know Air Force. We know Air Force does not pass the ball. I mean, their 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 quarterback passed for a total of uh, I believe yeah, 700 passing yards to to almost 600 rushing yards. So so that shows you how much they pass versus how much they rush. But JMU actually has the best rush defense in the country, allowing only 61 and a half yards per game. They have a D line with 15 and a half sacks and 50 tackles this year, which is oh, insane. That's um, nice. But yeah, I think it's an interesting matchup because Air Force's defense is also fairly good. They average just 17 uh, points a game, but they've really been stumbling over their last four. So it's going to be interesting to see if they can match up with this Dukes team who is so good against the run without John Lee Eldridge, who is third on the team in rushing yards. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think whenever you have a matchup where, where you have one of the top rushing offenses and rushing schemes versus a great rushing defense and, and some great D linemen. It's going to be interesting, but I think, I think JMU is really good. Actually. I think they're an actual great team in, in, in terms of the vast landscape of college football, obviously lost to app state kind of through, through their season off course of where they wanted to end up, but still finished 11 and one, have a, have a bowl game against air force. So I think, I think James Madison comes out on top. I, I think they probably win it fairly easily too, because of the lack of uh, of a key piece in the Air Force offense. So so yeah, I'm going to roll with JMU on that one. And then the the next one is actually not too far from from where we are at Fordham. I'm going with the with the Bad Boy Mowers Pinstripe Bowl between Rutgers and Miami. And I'm picking this one because, you know, obviously a little biased that because it's in Yankee Stadium, but also two teams that are kind of in interesting positions, both kind of finishing uh right around 500 with Rutgers being 500 and Miami being a game over in, in pretty big conferences and a lot of uncertainty going forward with at least the big 10, obviously with some big additions and some additions to the ACC as well. But uh, Rutgers is uh, 
has one of the best rushing offenses in the Big Ten. They, they Kyle Manungai led the Big Ten in rushing yards with over a thousand rushing yards. And um, it's going to be interesting because while Miami looks to be the better team in this matchup, if you if you look at it as at a grand scheme of the season, they have some big wins, but they also have a bad loss in there. But they're they're missing a lot of players in this one because a lot of players are either transferring or opting out in terms of getting ready for the NFL draft. So they're down a lot of players. So I think it'll be a close game if I'm being honest. And there's a, there's a history of some really good games in the Pinstripe Bowl. Rutgers is one and one in it, and I think Miami's zero and one. So so they both played in the Pinstripe Bowl before. I think it's going to be a good game. I think uh, Rutgers is better than their record says. They they had the second toughest schedule in all of college football, still managed to get six wins. So I think it's going to be a good one. I think whenever you have an ACC school play a Big Ten school, it's it's two different brands of football, but but two good brands of football nonetheless. So so I think it's going to be probably a high scoring game if I'm being honest. Probably a probably around a 35-30 game. I'm calling it. Uh, obviously, these offenses have had a tough time as of late, but. You know, no better time to get right than in a bowl game. So I got uh I got Miami still in this one. All right. Uh my my first game is the Wasabi Fenway Bowl. Number twenty four SMU traveling up to basically a home game for Boston College. SMU is eleven and two and AAC champion. Boston College obviously did not win their conference. SMU is Entering the game as 10-point favorites, ESPN gives them an 84% chance to win. And this comes after their win over Tulane in the AAC Championship. What I do think is interesting about this, despite the fact that I I do think SMU is probably going to kill BC, I think it's interesting because they're starting their backup quarterback, Kevin Jennings, because their their starter, Preston Stone, got hurt a couple games ago. Kevin Jennings is the quarterback that started and won the AAC Championship game which I think is, is just a testament to the, the team around him. Um, they're the highest-ranked group of five team right now, and so got to shut them out. They're also super close to where I'm from. Uh, Mom went there, so that's another reason I picked them. Um, but if you look at um, how the team is built, they're first in the league – in the or first in um, – sorry, nationally in defensive touchdowns, second in sacks. Sixth best scoring offense and tenth best red zone offense. This team is elite on both the offensive and the defensive side of the game. They're averaging forty over forty points per game on the season, and it's it's pretty much the opposite for Boston College. They started off six and three. They lost their last three against Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Miami. Uh, they just have not had the greatest year they would they would like to have. They wouldn't have the year that you would. One exactly, and so so for that reason, I'm going to take SMU. I'm going to take SMU to win by a decent amount. I think they'll they'll probably win by a couple touchdowns. Um, but I thought that game was interesting. The other one I want to talk about is the Texas Texas Bowl between seven and five Texas A&M and twenty ranked nine and four Oklahoma State. I want to look at this one because it's a it's a it's a tale of two stories basically. You have A&M who is had one of the had the best recruiting class a couple of years ago, and many of those players are transferring out, opting out. Oklahoma State, on the other hand, is actually playing with pretty much a full roster from this season. They have the NCAA leading rusher, Ollie Gordon, who I think is a very dynamic player, and I would love to see him uh, play. If he if he goes off, Oklahoma State goes off and they win. We've seen that throughout this season. Texas A&M is actually favored in this one. I think Oklahoma State's going to take it. I think they have the better roster. I think 
all the players transferring out of Texas A&M is going to hurt them a lot. Uh, I think Oklahoma State having a full roster, especially giving the ball to Ollie Gordon, feeding him, I think they'll be able to take this one with ease. All good choices, guys. I actually like these. These are good good reasons and good location. I think it's fun that you picked Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park, a little rivalry there just within the sights of the bowl games. I got – so the first one I picked has just a very personal – meaning to me and that is the quick lane bowl in detroit michigan i used to live out there and it's a yearly tradition that the day after christmas so you're still usually i was always with family um and it would be on tv Uh, i never got to go down but i did get to experience the game uh on tv all the time and there would always be a ton of advertisement near my town for the quick lane bowl it's a big quick lane's a big company um in that area of the country so bowling green versus minnesota you got a uh, seven and five Bowling Green team who obviously going into this when you're just comparing the conferences between the two teams, you got a Mac versus a Big Ten. I'm going to be honest. I like the way Bowling Green matches up against Minnesota far better. They're having a fantastic year this year, not to mention Bowling Green. Again, this is more personal to me. Bowling Green is right near uh, Ford Field in Detroit. It's only about a 40-minute drive away. They played there for the MAC championship. They come there all the time um, when, when they're competing. They've played in this bowl game before. So familiar hometown for them, a phenomenal season. I think, in my opinion, a subpar Minnesota team. I like Bowling Green in this one. I do think it'll be close. But, again, I, I, I got Bowling Green winning the quick lane bowl day after Christmas. My other pick. Virginia Tech versus Tulane in the GoBowling.com Military Bowl in Annapolis, Maryland. It's on the campus of the United States Naval Academy, and I am all over Tulane in this one. I think their their rise to being you know a very legitimate top twenty five program in the last couple of years has been really fun to watch. They come into this game holding down the twenty three seed, which is really exciting. Michael Pratt has been phenomenal this year. He's a top fifty quarterback in the league. He's just under twenty five hundred yards on the year. And honestly, just a young, impressive team that I think continues to be a little bit held back by the conference that they play in being in the American and and not really having some of the same firepower in their conference. But this is the same team that last year, you know, went into Dallas and beat USC, beat a Caleb Williams led USC team in Dallas in a bowl game in comeback fashion. So I definitely like the way that the 11 and two uh, Tulane Green Wave matchup against the six and six Virginia Tech Hokies. I got Tulane all the way. Guys, it's bowl season. I'm definitely excited to go from this episode and spend the next few days just tuning in to football games left and right. But nevertheless, that is just going to about do it for today's episode of College Gridiron. Have a very, very Merry Christmas and enjoy the rest of bowl season.